Episode 7, Knife, Crash and Burn. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a United Nations peacekeeper. Based on a true and factual account, some details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. I called out, and he turned towards me, as did the large-sized knife in his right hand. I pulled my firearm out in one very fast, smooth action and pointed it directly at him. The young male had left me with no choice, as had I delayed drawing it, he could have easily and quickly closed on me from that distance, and that knife would do some nasty damage. Let me give you an insight into a reasonably typical day as a peacekeeper in this troubled and dangerous country. On this midweek day, my watch alarm sounded at 06.30. Yesterday's shift had been hot and long, yet apart from the sound of the odd army Blackhawk chopper flying overhead, I'd finally managed to get something that resembled sleep. I quickly showered, donned my United Nations uniform, wrapped and zipped the Kevlar bulletproof vest on and organised my equipment belt before clipping it around my waist. I retrieved my Glock firearm from under the pillow, grabbed the two magazines that had been separated from it, rotated the first couple of rounds of each before shoving one magazine up and into the firearm. I then racked the slide to force the first round into the chamber, holstered it and secured the spare magazine in the front of my belt. I grabbed a couple of large bottles of water and the full camelback, car keys, police radio, a phone, jumped into the car and my pre-shift routine was done. The beginning of every shift was always this methodical and quick, and it was a shame the rest of any other given day was never as predictable or the same. So this was a morning shift on a Wednesday, and I was now somewhere past 40 straight days of working without a day off. The only reason I knew it was Wednesday was this was my nominated day to pick up one of our interpreters, Monty. It was my groundhog day of the week, because if I didn't pick up Monty and go through the routine that always followed, he wouldn't bother coming to work at all. Let me explain that Monty wasn't his proper name, and I actually have no idea what his real given name was. He'd been allocated to my section a few weeks ago, and he'd introduced himself to me as Monty. Apparently, someone else in the mission had appointed him with this westernised name of Monty, and not only did he absolutely love it, he wore it as a badge of honour. I have no idea who anointed him with this perception of great honour, but I do know why. It became really well known that his talents as a translator were, shall we say, a little lacking, and it was on a very regular basis that he proved he was an absolute Monty to stuff up most translations. I thought the nickname was very fitting, spot on, and Monty loved it. I stopped in front of his dirt-floored home that was so very typical in this country. It had a door but no window of any kind, and the random coloured material covering the window holes for privacy moved gently in the breeze. I gave a short tap of the horn, and Monty instantly came bounding out of his house and happily climbed into the front of my four-wheel drive. I knew he enjoyed getting in the front for the short drive to the office, as he would typically be relegated to a back seat for the rest of the shift. Now, that usually meant being squeezed in between two officers that I'd be training, and the constant struggle of trying to hang on to something as a car bounced, rolled, pitched and dived through paddocks 
and over substandard roads in often heated and confrontational moments. So we headed off for the short drive to the office. And what happens next is, as I say, Groundhog Day, every Wednesday morning without fail. The one and only other difference on the morning of each Wednesday is what happened next, which would occur maybe a minute or two either side of 0650. It would go something very close to this. Mr Welsh, it's Monty. Morning, Monty. Listen, Monty, I know it's you, so you don't have to say your name. Thank you, Mr Welsh. Happy afternoon. It's morning, Monty. Just, just morning. Afternoon comes after the morning. Good morning, afternoon, Mr Welsh. No, no, Monty, it's just morning. And please don't call me Mr Welsh. I've told you, just call me Eric. Yes, Mr Welsh. Fucking stab me in the eye. And then, also to script, around one minute later at around 0651, we'd usually give up talking. Monty would sit there, smiling like a cat who stole the milk, and the rest of the way to the office, we would drive it in silence. Except for this day. So it's early Wednesday morning, and the warring gangs from the night before would mostly still be in bed. Now, even though it was overcast, it was already hot outside, and I knew it would more than likely remain that way for the rest of the day. However, regardless of the type or time of day, there was never a time to be complacent. Not only did I need to dodge the debris left on the road from last night's activities, I also needed to scan each side of the road for incoming darts, rocks or whatever that came from homemade, high-powered slingshots and I had to be on the lookout for any form of ambush setting. I also had to work my way around the intermittent fires that would be left burning on the road from the battles each night and as I slowed to negotiate some of the debris, a young male to the left caught my eye. As we approached, I watched him throw a younger boy up against a brick fence and he started feeling around his pockets. I immediately stopped the car just short of them, and as I stepped out, I told Monty to stay inside. As I approached, I quickly took a photo to assist proving the offence, but also to make identification easier. I've actually placed a copy of the photo that's been posted on my Instagram account. So as I neared the boy, he tore the backpack off the younger male. I called out to him, and he turned towards me, a fairly large sized knife in his right hand. In one very fast and smooth action, I pulled the Glock out and pointed it directly at him, as should I delay drawing it, he could easily close on me from that distance and inflict some nasty damage with that large knife. There was the Mexican standoff, and I could see the cogs in his brain turning as he considered and weighed up what action to take before he chose the flea option. Holding the bag and knife, he ran to the other side of the road and roared off on a motorbike. I glanced at the young boy at the fence and I could see he was unharmed, so I jumped back into my Toyota and turned it back into the direction I had just come. Out of the corner of my eye, I took in Monty's reaction, as it appeared not only had he clearly learnt to read my actions, he'd also been listening. As I swung the car into a vicious turn, he reached above his head and he took a firm hold of the Jesus strap while letting me know what he was thinking. Fucker, he said, his eyes as wide as dinner plates. Hmm, I didn't see that coming, I thought. Maybe he's been hanging around me too much. But on a side note, I don't mean to be rude or blasphemous by calling that strap above your head the Jesus strap, but a lot of people jokingly refer to it as that. Now, this came about because there was a tendency to call out Jesus' name 
as they grabbed the strap when things appeared to be turning pear-shaped. Now, that's just a true fact. Now, the style of motorcycle this young male was riding is typically referred to as a step-through, and it's probably the most commonly chosen method of transport in these lesser socioeconomic parts of the world. They are easily sourced, they're cheap to buy, run and maintain, and therefore they're very much suited and sought after. There were literally millions of them scattered throughout Asia in particular, most of them never registered and therefore not easily identifiable unless you would intercept them on the spot. Fortunately for law enforcement purposes, they're very low performance and they're usually easy to gather up and intercept. So I roared up behind him and I pressed heavily on the horn. He had no mirrors on the bike and I don't know if it was human nature or just curiosity that made him turn and look behind. I also don't know what he thought when he copped an eyeful of my large UN four-wheel drive menacingly close behind him, but interestingly, he casually turned back and continued on his way. Such was the times and the present dog-eat-dog nature of this place, he wouldn't have had cared less for what he'd done, nor would he care for what I represented or anyone else for that matter, all of which I was about to find out. He slowly turned right into a side street then left into another before he twisted the throttle as hard as he could and he took off. I quickly followed suit and caught up to him again until he unexpectedly braked so hard he locked the back wheel up in a puff of black smoke. I too slammed on the brakes as I watched him expertly slide the rear of the bike sideways and turned into what was some sort of dirt driveway. I blindly followed him into the driveway and unfortunately drove straight into a group of already scattering chickens. Yet again, I was forced to brake heavily, as he had deliberately and cleverly ridden into a path that led to a very narrow and short lane that I had no chance of fitting into. I watched him travel the length of the lane until he turned left at the end and rode out of view. Credit where credit's due, local knowledge saved him, for the moment. As I shoved the Toyota into reverse and backed out of the private land, the owner ran towards us, shaking his fists. Two chicken dinners, four dinars, Mr. Welsh, said Monty. Tell him I'll come back and pay for the chickens, Monty, I replied. Monty yelled out across me through my open window in the direction of the owner. Now, I'm not too sure if Monty screwed it up again, because the owner's response was to pick up a rock and throw it at us as we roared off. I took the next right and watched the motorbike cross over the intersection in front of me. I then turned left when I got there, and I raced towards him, easily and quickly reeling him in. It now seemed his concern had changed, as he began to constantly look back at us. As I contemplated giving him a nudge, he swerved to the right and up onto a dirt footpath into the path of pedestrians. Now this really was concerning. I kept a position parallel to him, and watched as he swerved in and out of them. He sort of seemed to be doing okay, swerving right, then left, right, a bit of a brake, hard acceleration, and then head on into a middle-aged male walking towards him. The impact was severe, and I watched as if it happened in slow motion as he was thrown from the bike. He seemed to spend a lot of time in the air before coming back to earth using the left side of his helmet to heavily impact the hard dirt ground. It appeared somehow to grip and he began to roll a number of times. 
Now, I'm not too sure what happened to him after that, as I had to swerve to avoid his motorcycle, which had spun onto the road and into my path. I managed to stop without running over it, and I quickly jumped from the car. I must be honest here, and so I didn't initially care too much for the young male, as I ran straight back to the scene of the accident. I'd seen it had been a very hard hit, and I naturally feared the worst. The pedestrian was semi-conscious, and he was in a bad way. He had suffered an obvious compound fracture to his lower right arm as a large portion of a bone was protruding through the skin of his forearm. It wasn't the appearance of the bone from inside his body that bothered me. I dreaded to think what internal injuries he must have suffered. But it was what happened next that caught me by surprise. As I notified police headquarters of the collision, I turned to watch the young male pick up his motorbike next to my car and ride off. Monty had stayed in the car, which was fine, as I knew he struggled with the blood and guts side of things, but he was frantically waving at me as he watched the young male surprisingly ride off. I ran back to the car, and once again we took off after the motorcycle. You know, in these situations, a lot goes through your mind, as a number of conditions need to be met to justify continuing a pursuit. You need to consider the road and weather conditions, the traffic activity, your driving capabilities and that of the offender, and most importantly, the potential risk to others, just like what I had witnessed, and of course the reason for the pursuit. Having hit the pedestrian certainly ticked off the last requirement, as the potential consequences of that collision drastically stepped up from the armed robbery with a knife, particularly if the pedestrian didn't survive. With his right wrist bent unnaturally downwards, trying to squeeze every bit of speed out of the motorbike, the youth leant low into the bike to slipstream the wind. I had to quickly reel him in, as should he get too far away, a problem I now faced, as he had previously proven, was my lack of familiarity with the surrounds. I didn't know the quirky laneways like he would, or the narrow side streets that could provide a quick getaway or hide him from my view. I had no GPS, and Monty was next to useless, as he didn't even know his left from his right. Surprisingly, we got over 100 kilometres per hour as he swerved in and out of cars and other bikes on a motorbike that was clearly damaged from the accident. He frequently turned his head, keeping an eye on our position, and I was very conscious of the fact I had to stop him and do it soon before another incident and more carnage occurred. I considered numerous options before I finally settled on one, but I needed to be patient, bide my time, and wait for the right opportunity to present itself for it to work. He continued in a straight line, and I considered giving him a nudge, but decided against it, as it would cause way too much paperwork. Still finding comfort and solace in the strap, Monty now remained quiet as we waited for the opportunity to arrive, and fortunately, we didn't have to wait too long. Turning off the road, he rode into a grass paddock, and I could see why he chose this path. His intended target was a large group of trees in the distance, and I could see there was no chance I could fit the Toyota through there. So I pushed the car harder, and I broke one of the golden rules of safety. I positioned us for a side intercept, which is considered taboo, as it's a dangerous manoeuvre. It should only be used as a last resort, as it exposes you to the subject and the possibility of being sideswiped or being shot at. Now, the huge thing in our favour was he'd definitely lose out in a sideswipe challenge, but it would be a whole different ball game if he was armed with something more than that knife. I motioned for Monty to lower his window, 
I used my left arm to push him back as far as possible into his seat. This was a little difficult as he still maintained a good grip on that strap. I knew there was no point trying to explain to Monty what I was about to do as it would be difficult for him to understand and I couldn't afford for him to panic or react poorly. As I said, he wasn't too good when it came to blood and violence. Driving up to be parallel with the motorbike, I moved slightly ahead of him and using my left hand, I unclipped a large party pack of capsicum spray from the holder of my leg and I snatched the steering wheel left. The youth had nowhere to go and I was now very, very close to side swiping him, but I had to be and I had to be as close to him as possible for this to work. I reached across in front of Monty with the spray pack and as far out of the window as I could before I pressed the horn with my spare hand. It can only be described as human nature that made him turn his head in our direction just as I deployed the spray. Now, my decision to take this course of action wasn't for the purpose of taking some sort of YouTube video, but maybe I should have because what happened next was, shall we say, a little humorous? His entire face copped a direct hit of the spray, immediately turning it orange, and like every other person who has been sprayed with this demonic product, his first reaction was to try and rub it off. Now, let me give all of you out there a little bit of advice. If you ever find yourself dosed with capsicum spray, do not try and rub it off ever, particularly if you're riding a motorbike. So after a, quite a few rapid blinks, he took his left hand off the handlebar first and vigorously rubbed his face. Yep, that is certainly going to activate it further. With his vision now even more compromised, his next reaction was to shake his head and take his right hand off the throttle to rub his eyes. The bike slowed rapidly, which was okay, until he used his left hand in conjunction with his right. And then for the second time in what was only probably 15 minutes, he separated himself from the motorcycle. This time it wasn't as bad. The front wheel turned under him and he fell onto the grass where he slid on his face for a short distance. I stopped the car and this time both Monty and I slowly approached him as he was writhing on the ground trying to pull his eyes out. Having personally experienced it, I can assure you a direct hit with capsicum spray can be nasty, so I wasn't surprised to see and hear his reaction. What did surprise me though was Monty dishing it out to the young male in words that I knew weren't polite. After a short wrestle, I managed to get his hands and arms away from his face and I plastic cuffed him to the rear. As tempted as I was to let him lie there and cook for a while, as we term it, I went and retrieved one of the large bottles of water from the car and poured it all over his face. Good job, Mr. Welsh, said Monty, as he held his thumb up in approval. He had the widest of smiles I'd ever seen. Fortunately, the pedestrian survived the impact and the medical intervention that followed. I only say that as I feel you are potentially better off stitching yourself up than letting one of the local doctors near you. You'd be pleased to know I did return to the owner of the chickens and handed him enough money to cover the loss of five chickens, even though I only took out one and, let's say, a half. I gave a very pleased Monty the half one, and he later took great pleasure in telling me that his wife had cooked it up for dinner that night. Mind you, with the usual poor quality of his translations, a plethora of things could have happened to that chicken. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, 
please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.